Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 1014 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Now, I unfortunately spent most of September in hospital for an appendectomy, and then another surgery for a secondary infection, both obviously unplanned. So today's episode comes to you thanks to the hard work of one of my executive producers, Cynthia Lohman, who handled the edit and mix. A big thanks to Cindy. A big thank you to those of you who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course we love hearing from you. In fact, the librarian told me that he's going to start reading the best reviews on the show. So if you submit a five-star rating and review of the show in iTunes, there's a good chance the librarian might share yours on the show in the near future. Like he does now. Hello, kiddies. It is I, your old friend, the librarian, and I wanted to read a couple of newer reviews. <laughs> and I do like new reviews. This one's my favorite. It says, is a must to listen to. <laughs> Lot of twos in there. Sound, voice, storytelling, and tone are wickedly great. I've been listening to the Wicked Library for about a year now, and each story has a different twist or theme that keeps you interested. The Wicked Library and its other podcast, The Lift, are both of the highest quality, not just as a horror podcast, but as a great podcast in general. Well, thank you, that was lovely of you to say. And here's a really good one, another five-star review. Not a member yet, but soon will be. I listen at night to help me sleep. It works. The problem, if you want to call it that, is I wake up in a panic slash nightmare slash disoriented state of reality. So what is happening to me while I'm asleep but still listening? Must be the black rip. <laughs> no, 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 it has nothing to do with that. It's just a free byproduct, and like it or not, you may already be a member. <laughs> and it's probably better if you don't remember how it happened anyway. You can't be held liable for that, can you? <laughs> Keep those reviews coming, kiddies. We'll talk to you soon. The librarian asked me to remind you that a copy of our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available on Amazon in print and Kindle, makes a great Halloween treat. While you're hungry for pumpkin spice, caramel apple spice, or peanut butter cups, his books are hungry for your fear. For less than the cost of a mega-sized fall coffee drink, you can feed a book your fear and keep it cold and wicked. Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, like today's author, C. Brian Brown. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda, 
It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a huge thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of the show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark tale by TWL alum C. Brian Brown, who wrote today's story, Thank You for Your Life, Just for the Wicked Library. Today's storyteller is our good friend, the always amazing voice actor, Graham Rowett, accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Chris's work and buy it. It keeps him making more. You can learn more about C. Brian Brown and find links to his other work on his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com and at amazon.com. Now, let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> time is nature's terminator, you know? It's out there, always. And we can't bargain or reason with it. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it never stops. Ever. Until we're dead. And that's the greatest mindfuck of all. Because then time only stops for us. Until those who could afford it started living forever. I wasn't one of those. I was scheduled to die in less than 45 minutes. My parents and I were the only ones in the APT clinic other than the staff. The staff kept to themselves, refusing to make eye contact, especially with me. Can you blame them? Somewhere behind the blue double doors, one of them was making up the bed where I'd take my last breath. They'd be putting an arrangement of sunflowers on the side table and making sure the room smelled of vanilla and sandalwood, like I'd requested. It's what my dad's beard oil smells like. Unlike a regular doctor's visit, the paperwork for this asks about your favorite flowers, type of music, and smell. Makes sense that it doesn't really matter what your past illnesses or surgeries were when you have no future. They'd also asked if I wanted a chaplain to attend me before I died. They'd be more than happy to arrange one to visit. They had agreements with several of the local churches. Check yes or no, pick your religion, and save your eternal soul. Another staffer was prepping the viewing room from which my parents would watch me die. The paperwork my parents filled out only confirmed my date of birth and my social security number and asked what arrival time would be most convenient to kill the child they couldn't save. My parents chose to arrive an hour prior, as anything more seemed masochistic, and anything less was undignified. 
My dad had also said the paperwork was a shitty reminder of his failure. Why make him choose anything? They had my medical records and knew when I'd die. Why not just set an arbitrary time? Make everyone show up 90 minutes before. I imagine that's why he sat stiffly next to me, arms crossed over his chest, staring stonily at the far wall instead of looking at me. My mother, on the other hand, couldn't stop staring at me, though she tried to hide it. She'd look away every time I turned my head, but she kept her painful grip on my arm. I'd like to say my thoughts centered around what I'd done in my relatively short time alive, but they didn't. I'd have preferred to think of my last home run in Little League, my first beer, losing my virginity in a study room of the public library. It just didn't work like that for me. I couldn't focus on memories. I'd think of a birthday party, and instantly the candles on the cake were needles. The presents piled up on the table were blinking machinery monitoring my vitals. No matter how hard I tried, I always returned to the next and last 40 minutes of my life. I'd read all about the APT device. I wanted to know how it worked, what was going to happen to my body when it clicked itself on and murdered me. Would I feel the toxin as it coursed through my veins and stopped my heart, or would the anesthetic and paralytic make it painless? Dissenting literature is hard to find, which isn't surprising. They don't want people finding out that it can hurt, or that it can take more than a few seconds to kill you. But with enough time and access, you can get anything you want from the internet. It's not legal, and it's sometimes immoral, but honestly, when you're going to die, those are minor inconveniences. Way back in the year 2014, it took almost two hours for one man, Joseph Wood III, to die. He wasn't the only one either. Dennis McGuire took almost 30 minutes. Each of them gasped and writhed in pain, if the old websites are believable. I don't see why they wouldn't be. The problem I saw was that I had one device that was on a timer, and what happened if it didn't do its job and killed me? Or, even worse, what if the anesthetic or paralytic failed? Would my parents have to watch me gasp and struggle for two hours, or possibly longer? Would someone from the clinic rush into my room and do... something? The thought of my parents watching me suffer pissed me off. They didn't deserve that. They'd done the best they could, and I didn't fault them. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. Beyond the terror of my impending death, I was furious. And the longer I sat there, waiting, the more anger replaced terror. I rubbed my hands along my pant leg, drying my palms, which were damp and warm. I took a deep breath, inhaling the ozone-purified air. God forbid if it smelled like something, anything other than nothing. It just wouldn't do to have a scent set off a patient's memory and have them dissolve into an emotional mess in the middle of the waiting room to actually be upset that the life they'd been living was about to come to a very abrupt end. They pump your favorite smell into the room with you because that's calming and takes your mind to happier places instead of the whiskey and cigarettes your detention teacher smelled like. The whole event was supposed to be sacred, a monumental event of pride, not only for you, but for your family. You've seen the infomercials. Sacrifice for the greater good. There is nothing nobler than a meaningful death. If you can't live forever, then be sure to die well. But what is there to be proud of? There was only one way to escape, which was to pay for the REC booster. You could run, but once your body ticked over into that 19th year, the APT device activated and killed you. Considering the yearly increase in cost for the wrecked booster, it's been a foolproof way to control undesirable parts of the population, 
and an easy, legal way to restructure the class system. The double doors opened, and a young woman dressed in black slacks, a black and white polka-dotted shirt, and black flats stepped through. A pink clipboard rested against her chest. She looked directly at me and called my name. I'm sure there have been many people named James Keller in this world, but in that moment, more than any other before or since, I knew there would ever only be a single me. Our individuality gets lost. No, that's not right. It's stolen from us at a young age. We're indoctrinated to believe our lives are only worth what we can accomplish. From the stories my parents told me about what it was like for previous generations, life was broken down into goals. Get an education, get a job, pay the government for the privilege of living, get married, and have kids. Each generation repeated the cycle, and with each iteration, individuality was leached away to be defined by the goals themselves. Where did your education come from? What job did you end up with? And, more importantly, how much did you make per hour, per year, per investment? Didn't want to get married or have kids? Well, you're missing life's most happening party boat, and you weren't as complete or as good as the people who did those things. You were somehow worth less than them. Those people weren't less than the others. They just saw their lives playing out differently, their accomplishments being something other than money and kids. But for us, now... We know if our parents can't pay for the rec booster, we don't even have a shot at having a different life. We get no life, none to speak of, and we're taught that dying is our greatest accomplishment. We're taught to embrace and anticipate it, to celebrate it. I wanted to bolt for the exit. Just run and keep running until the APT device popped and ended me. At least then I'd die on my own terms, not here in this clinic, not under the auspices of what the government deemed appropriate. And by appropriate, it's cheaper to run the clinics than it is to support a life that ends before it produces its fair share of goods for the rest of society. The beauty of longevity was planning and appropriation, or so my dad said. Out there on the street, though, running until I couldn't run anymore. That would be a spectacle, wouldn't it? The people with their young kids, many of whom won't be able to afford the rec booster either, watching me collapse and writhe around, groaning and gasping for the last minute of my life. Let them understand it's all a big lie. But I didn't run. My mother grabbed me around the waist and sobbed into my chest. They were loud, giant hitches that shook both our bodies. My dad, for his part, had the decency to look me in the eye as he gripped my shoulder. No words passed between my parents and me. What was there to be said that hadn't been said in the preceding days? I suppose one benefit of knowing exactly when you're going to go was being able to say your goodbyes so the actual dying was less harsh for those around you. My dad eased my mother away and back into her seat. I cleared my throat and walked through the double doors. The woman followed and the door shut quietly behind us, whisking closed with a slight whooshing of air. No dramatic clank, no sound of ultimate finality, but still the muscles in my abdomen tightened. Each breath down the hall cramped my midsection like I'd been running for hours, instead of walking a mere hundred feet. My breathing shallowed and sped up, coming faster and faster as we navigated the narrow hallway. There was only so many rooms, and eventually I'd get to mine. We passed two other halls and kept pace on a straight line. What number would it be? We'd already passed a half dozen, and I knew I was on the verge of hyperventilating. My gait slowed as the woman in black stepped up beside me and pointed out the last room on the left. 
My room. Number 12. The number was affixed to a real wood door. You see them all the time in offices now. The grain flowed downward in whirls and spirals, darker than the rest, and I focused on the biggest knot I could find, on its natural curves and colors. Everything has an end, right? The door was once a tree, and now it was the final guardian to my end. We, this tree and I, were both unique, for no other tree had that tree's grain configuration, and I would always be this James Keller, never duplicated, regardless of where my body ended up. I held on to the thought, my breathing calmer, as the woman stepped over and turned the knob. She led me into the last place I'd ever see. It wasn't special at all. If you've been in a hospital room, then you've seen this room. White walls with yellow trim near the ceiling, and a bright white tile with orange and brown specks in it. Perhaps it was cleaner and brighter, and I suppose that made it more appealing. The blinds were up and the sun streamed in and bounced off the tiles, kaleidoscoping across the ceiling in a rainbow of colors. Sunflowers adorned the tables at the head of the bed. The bed, though, was the telltale detail. Skinny and narrow, with metal side rails that could be raised or lowered. One corner of the blue mattress peeked out from under the white-fitted sheet. The wall opposite the bed was a large video screen, and speakers hung from the corners of the room. The warm air invited me in, and somewhere near the bed, I caught the delicate aroma of vanilla and sandalwood. I closed my eyes and took several deep breaths. They couldn't hide the machinery and monitors, though. The IV pump stood watch on the left side of the bed, and the pulse ox and heart rate monitors on the right, gentle reminders that this was going to be a permanent vacation. A single saline bag, half full, hung on the IV pump. At least I'd crossed the finish line hydrated. A nurse entered the room. She wore green scrubs and white gloves. The nurse set about prepping the IV, while the woman in black held the clipboard out to me as she explained in detail what would happen once the device activated. This part is something they don't tell you about when it's clear your parents aren't going to be able to pay for the rec booster. You have to sign a release form so that your family will hold the clinic harmless in case anything goes wrong. I didn't read all the fine print. Why should I? Only one thing would stop the APT device, and that was the rec booster. Sure, the booster was kept here, on the same premises where I was going to die, but it wasn't in my room. There was also a HIPAA privacy statement. They'd record my visual death, but no sound, so I should speak freely any last words, confessions, or declarations without worry. The only people who'd hear me were my parents. I scribbled my signature on the lines, dated them, and handed the clipboard back. The woman in black thanked me for my life before leaving. The nurse instructed me to roll up my sleeves and get in the bed. I should make myself comfortable. The sheets were stiff under my fingers, the pillows hard and unfluffed, and my head barely made an indent. I could watch television or listen to music. They'd taken my survey responses and programmed a playlist for me, whatever I wanted. These last few minutes were mine to spend how I wanted. Except porn, she said. Of course not. I couldn't get off while I was getting off. I laughed, my chest rumbling and shaking. How many people had done that? Just whipped it out during the penultimate minute of their life and died with their dick in their hands. The nurse slid the IV needle into my vein. A small amount of my blood went into the tube, and I stopped laughing. 
I swallowed hard and shut my eyes against the slight, almost inconvenient pain of the needle stick. No one. No one died with their dick in their hands. The nurse tapped a few buttons on the IV pump, and the clear solution made its way down the tube and into my body. She made her way around the bed and strapped on the blood pressure cuff, slipped the oxygen reader onto my finger. She lifted my shirt and attached the leads for the heart monitor. Her hands, even through her gloves, were cold. The machine on that side lit up with a soft hum, and my vitals blinked into life. Every few seconds, the jagged heartbeat line bounced across the screen with a soft beep. In about 15 minutes, the machine would go silent when my heart stopped. Somewhere beyond my door, the flatline drone would sound to alert the staff. The nurse made some final adjustments to the monitor. She laid a blanket across my knees. Just in case I got cold, she said, and then pointed out the camera above me. She reminded me I could speak and my parents would hear what I said, though I wouldn't hear anything they said back. The nurse thanked me for my life before leaving. And then I was alone in the room. The bed, rigid and uncomfortable, didn't make a sound as I adjusted on it. The pillow refused to cradle my head and reminded me more of a rock I'd once used as a pillow during a family camping trip. It wasn't on purpose, of course, but I'd been listening to my cousin sing around the campfire and had put my head on it. I ended up falling asleep, staring up at a vast blackness. This was much the same, though instead of darkness, it was bright. So very bright, and without music, unless you counted the beep of the heart monitor. The camera was a black hole in the ceiling. I had about ten minutes left now. My fingers rubbed together, a nervous tick I've had since I was a kid. I took air in through my nose and released it through my mouth. Concentrating on my breathing prevented me from slipping back into a panic. I'd been expecting this moment for three years. For my 15th birthday, my parents had told me they weren't going to raise the $2.5 million for the rec booster. They'd apologized and splurged on a new vid wall for my bedroom, a new desk computer, and a car. Expensive gifts, all of them, and money better put towards saving my life. That night, I took a hammer to the vid wall and smashed it. My father rushed into the room, alarmed someone was trying to kill me. Imagine that! and wrestled it away from me. I screamed at him then, asking why he'd spend money on all these things instead of saving it. I didn't want things. I wanted to live. Didn't he want me to live too? My father held me close that night, but he never answered my question. He wanted me to live. I know that now, but for a while I didn't. If I was going to die, then I was going to exploit their guilt. It was after that night that I started digging into the history of the APT device and the rec booster, using the desktop they gave me. When I needed a new program to get to some unreachable corner of the internet past, I'd push my parents to buy it. And they always did, even though I often had to tell them they could just sell it after I died and make some of their money back. It wasn't fair of me, but what about this sort of life is fair? Sure, it's fine if you get the rec booster... But over the years, as people got older and made more money, the goalposts kept moving. It became more and more expensive to get your children the rec booster. But that only made parents work that much harder, produce that much more, even though it would never be enough. And the move to a cashless society, one where every cent and dime was accounted for, kept most illegal or under-the-table jobs at an extremely strict minimum. 
That's where my parents were at, stuck in one of those transitory periods, and they couldn't float the difference no matter how many hours they worked, no matter how many jobs they took. The money just wasn't going to be there for me. Ever. The clinic didn't have clocks in the rooms. They didn't want people seeing the minutes and seconds tick down to nothing. Early on, when all this was still new, people literally went watching the clock make its way to their appointed time. After a dozen or so, it was deemed cruel and unusual punishment, so they removed the clocks. I can attest to the fact that waiting without knowing the exact time was bad enough. What did I have left? Five minutes? Four? Six? Sweat broke out on my brow, and my fingers kept rubbing together. Can you imagine if there was a little red hand you could track to the very end? You may very well lose your shit. The anesthetic, if it worked, would put me to sleep. At that point, I wouldn't know what happened after, but the paralytic, once released, would freeze all my muscles, including my diaphragm and lungs, effectively asphyxiating me. But just to be sure, the toxin would come in last and stop my heart. I stared upward at the camera. How many people had lain in this very bed and looked at that very camera? How many had pleaded for their life, for someone to come in and save them? How many had said nothing at all, or just cried themselves to death? Did people spit and curse at the camera, telling those watching to go fuck themselves? I could believe that more than my previous thought. There were a lot of different ways to put your dick in your hand. My mouth twitched. I wanted to tell my parents that it would be fine, but it wasn't, and I didn't trust the clinic to not be listening in or recording it in some way, considering it an exit interview. Some bureaucrat in a black suit with an American flag tie listening to my final words, formulating a series of questions and answers to fit some regimented narrative. What did you think of life, young man? Well, to be honest, it was great, but a bit short. How long should it be, in your opinion? How about whatever my natural lifespan would be? Why can't we just do that again? And who would pay for that exactly? Me. I would pay for that. I'm capable of working. We tried that once, young man, and it didn't work out. It would have worked fine if the government hadn't mismanaged the funds or... The interviewer slapped his hand on the table, the sound a gunshot in my ear. Guess he didn't like where that was going. Another gunshot hand slap, this one louder, too loud to be part of my imagination. I sat up in the bed. Someone, the nurse maybe, screamed. The sound was cut off by a third gunshot. During my time in school, we'd gone through three active shooter drills a year. The final one of the year always featured real weapons and someone actually shooting a gun in the school. They shot rounds off from various locations, so we'd know not only what they sounded like, but would be better able to judge where they were coming from. And gunshots, when experienced firsthand and up close, are unmistakable. There were two more in the space of half a minute. Thirteen years of drilling leapt forward, and I immediately swung my legs over the side of the bed. I judged the shots to be coming from the lobby. The first rule was always to evacuate if you could. There were a few hallways that I'd passed on my way to this room. No doubt one of them led to a fire exit or something, but I didn't know for sure and wasn't about to find out. I hopped off the bed and my right arm jerked behind me. The pulse oximeter came off on its own, but the blood pressure cuff and the heart leads prevented me from going far. As I undid the blood pressure cuff, I noticed the IV line in my left arm. 
Another shot. This one followed by a hollow bang. They'd come through the double doors. I yanked the leads off my chest, taking no small amount of hair with them. The IV line hurt coming out and left me bleeding. My blood ran bright down my arm and splattered on the floor as I disengaged the wheels on the bed and rolled it toward the door. If you can't escape, you hide. I barricaded the door and then laughed. What did it matter if someone shot me or if the APT device went off? The result was the same, wasn't it? I only had a few minutes to live either way. The bed bumped against the door, and the sound solidified the question of why it mattered. I wasn't ready to die, either by gunshot or by sacrifice for the greater good. More doors banged open. More shots boomed out. The acrid smell of cordite slipped under the door, destroying the subtleness of my father's beard. I missed the smell at once, but this new smell, one of war and death, helped shift my mind into another place. My heart thumped in my chest so hard it hurt. Every beat was a rabbit punch to my solar plexus. I panted, knowing what I needed to try. I had absolutely nothing to lose. For you sports fans out there, I was about to play the most important two-minute drill of my life. I pulled the bed away almost as soon as it settled against the door. I grabbed the doorknob and doubt crippled my muscles, turning them into steel resistance. Death was everywhere. Out there, it promised to be painful, where behind the door I'd just fall asleep and that would be it. However, out there, with the possibility of pain, was also the promise of life. Somewhere in this building, there was a stock of rec boosters. All I needed was to get my hands on one, pump into my leg or arm, and done. I'd worry about getting out after that. I yanked open the door and stuck my head into the hallway. The double doors at the far end stood open. The edges were broken and jagged from where they'd been kicked in. The lock shattered. The waiting room, from what I could see of it, was empty of living people. Being at the end of the hall, I only had one direction I could go. I went as fast as I could, keeping my back against the wall, my eyes ahead of me. My fingers rubbed together, went over my palms, and came away wet. How long did I have? My legs carried me forward to the hall on the left. There was one hall further down and to my right. That way would be the reception area, at the very least, I knew. But beyond that, I wasn't sure. I knew I didn't want to go that way, though. Blocking the entrance to the hall was the corpse of the woman in black. Her upper body hung out in the hall, and most of her head was plastered along the walls and ceiling. The rec booster nearly stopped the aging process, keeping cells young and healthy and dramatically reduced the chance our cells would replicate into cancerous and malignant tumors or degenerate into various other diseases, such as Parkinson's. Heart attacks and strokes, while they did happen from time to time, accounted for less than a score of deaths in a decade. The booster didn't protect us from bullets or knives or other physical trauma. If you leapt off the Empire State Building, you'd still be a puddle on Fifth Avenue, just one with fewer ripples. The next hallway was short and sweet, with only four doors, one of which was a metal door at the end with an orange bar marked Exit. The warning read, Do not enter. Alarm will sound. Often the alarms never went off. Another little lie to control people and force them to certain places. Two doors, both marked with numbers, matched the door to my room. Those I ignored and went to the unmarked door. The knob turned easily in my hand and the door swung open. A gunshot rang out, and I jumped. 
the door flew out of my hands and clanged against something metal inside the room. I cursed at the noise and hurried in, closing the door behind me. An automatic light came on above me, illuminating the room's innards of sheets, blankets, pillows, and various cleaning supplies. A mop machine and a vacuum machine rested in their respective charging cases underneath one of the shelves. They'd have their work cut out for them later tonight, that was for sure. I had no choice but to go down to the other hall. It made sense they'd keep the rec boosters closer to the reception area. More people to keep an eye on them, for one, and for all I knew, they were in a locked room and only one person had access. Maybe that person was already dead. I dismissed the thought and checked the hallway as quickly as I could. I had to hurry, but I couldn't will my body to run into the business end of a gun. Back in the empty hallway, loud, indistinct voices filled the space. I couldn't understand the words, but there was no mistaking the sound of the gun as it went off again. I made my way to the dead body I'd seen earlier. Her blood squished underfoot and pooled around my shoes as I peered around the corner. Each time I shifted my weight, a heavy metallic scent mixed with the smell of cooling meat. My eyes watered, and despite everything, my body wanted to eject what little I'd had to eat today. Instinct told me to close my mouth to stop the retching, but instead I opened wide and stopped breathing through my nose. My throat burned, but after a few seconds, I knew I'd be keeping my food down. The hall stretched 40 feet before cutting 45 degrees toward the front of the clinic. I scanned the doors I could see. Laundry, relaxation, restroom. And then, down around the angle, there was a metal door with a boxy keypad lock. Along with the keypad was a narrow, dark slit for a keycard. The plaque on this one said, Medical Supplies. The voices came again, one low and demanding, and the other high-pitched and terrified. They were down there somewhere. I assumed the hall led to the reception area with the sliding frosted glass where I'd checked in an hour ago. A woman in green scrubs, not the nurse who'd hooked up my IV, had confirmed my name and impending time of death. I still couldn't understand the conversation, or maybe I didn't want to. Maybe my brain was locking it out to focus on what happened next. I knelt next to the dead woman. Her blood soaked into my pants, and the wetness snaked its way up and down my legs. I shuddered at the sensation, imagining this was what being molested by a ghost must feel like. I plunged my hands into her pants' pocket. So much blood had gathered in the fabric, it was like putting my hands in a thick soup. Her pockets contained a set of keys, a pack of cigarettes, and a lighter. This woman had to have the key card that opened the door. She wasn't a nurse and I figured she was the office manager, the keeper of the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom that contained the vault that could save my life. But she had nothing in her pockets, no lanyards around her neck, and no badge or card was clipped to her belt. I slumped against and slid down the wall. I put my hands on my knees and fought tears. I couldn't have much time left, maybe even less than a minute. I sought a clock on the wall, somewhere, anywhere, and found none. Why were there no clocks anywhere in the clinic? Did these people not want to know when killing time was over? I pushed off the wall and grabbed her closest wrist. I forced the sleeve up and found bare, bloody skin. Leaning over, not caring about her being dead or covering myself in her gore, I checked her other wrist and did cry when I found a silver circlet watch. I twisted it around to see the time, but something was wrong. 
The glass was cracked from one end to the other, and in several places tiny particles had fallen out, leaving small apertures. Some of her blood had sneaked inside those holes when it was still warm and formed condensation on the inside. The minute hand swung limply with the motion of her wrist, while the hour was stuck somewhere between the four and the five. I slammed her hand into the carpet once, then again. In that instant, I opened my mouth to scream. I wanted to draw the shooter to me. I wanted them to blast me into oblivion. Surely having your head smeared across the wall didn't hurt, right? Faster than a snap, I'd be gone, and this endless goddamn waiting would be over. But my fingers brushed across something hard, and when I looked, I saw the corner of the pink clipboard poking out from under the dead woman's leg. Her blood-logged body rolled heavily toward me, and I snatched the clipboard. Secured to the plastic clip by a pink piece of yarn was her keycard. Her name was Isabel Ramsey, blood type O positive, aged 88 years. In rec years, she was close to 24. The rec booster slowed the aging enough that for approximately every 12 years, your body would age one. The oldest living person right now is almost 600 years old, but the potential for some people is a thousand or more. With all that time, you'd think the world would be a better place than it is. It should be. I ripped the key card off the clipboard and stood up. I put my back against the wall and went fast toward the angle. I left red splotches on the wall anywhere my hands and arms made contact. I didn't hesitate, turning the corner like I owned the place. I ran straight to the medical supplies room. Further down the turn, a lone man stood with a shotgun in his hands. He wore jeans and a long coat with a hood. The ladder was pulled up right around his head, arranged around his feet, almost like the petals of a flower, were the bodies of the other nurses and office staff. The barrel rested against the chest of the nurse who'd put in my IV and hooked me up to my end-of-life equipment. Tears stained her face. She wobbled her head from side to side and repeated, I don't know. Her eyes found mine as I reached the door. She screamed for me to help her. Such a high-pitched, frightened sound. The panicked noise of an animal caught in a trap it knew it wouldn't survive. The gunman spun in my direction, and I saw his face for the first time. A patchy, dark beard covered his chin, and his green eyes narrowed. The card swiped through the reader, and a light turned green. I shoved the door open as he fired at me. The wall near the door sprayed debris that sliced open my cheek and forehead. Something stung my shoulder, and I swatted at the pain while kicking the door shut. There was another gunshot, but no impact near the door. The shelves were lined with various medical supplies, blood pressure cuffs, rolls of surgical tape, full boxes of latex gloves in various sizes, bags of saline, and thermometer covers. I scanned the supplies rapidly, my heart rate increasing every time I found something that wasn't the wreck booster. It must be here. A sudden, rapid booming behind me made me jump. I glanced at the door and watched it vibrate in its frame. Was he shooting the door or banging on it? I went back to rummaging the shelves until I found what I wanted on the rear shelving unit. Three boxes labeled Replication Error Correction sat next to a row of injector guns. One of the boxes was already open, and I stuffed my hand inside. I pulled out a rounded cylinder filled with a pale orange liquid, and I dropped it when the next crash came against the door. Cursing, I grabbed another from the box. 
and managed to hold on to this one as the gunman pounded at the door. The cylinder slipped into the injector the same way a CO2 cartridge went into a pellet gun. I pressed a button and the plunger tightened, penetrating one end, readying it to fire the booster. I pressed the end of the injector gun against my leg and pulled the trigger. Cold radiated from the injection point, traveling down my leg toward my toes. My calf muscles stiffened and cramped, and I tumbled against a shelf before hitting the floor. The injector bounced out of my hand. The pounding continued, but I ceased listening to it. The freeze had started going up my leg, and I steeled myself against the inevitable. Everywhere the cold went, the cramps followed. My hips and stomach knotted up. When my back went, it arched until only my butt and shoulders remained on the floor. My arms bent inward, but it was my fingers that took the most brutal shapes, twisting into positions seen only in old horror movies. My chest tightened as the freeze went up into my throat. My mouth jacked open and blocked there. A guttural growl escaped from the back of my throat, and then it was up into my eyes, rolling them back to the whites, and everything went dark. All sound left, flipped off with some physiological switch as it went through my ears. When it hit my brain, my body collapsed. I coughed and gasped for breath as feeling returned to my body. My fingers flexed, my knees bent again, and I was able to roll over. Using a shelf as leverage, I climbed back to my feet. The pounding at the door continued. How long would he hit it? How much punishment could it take? I'm not sure I wanted to find out. But then I thought about how badly he wanted in this room. His tirade against the steel was brutal and unending. Strike after strike resounded through my small haven. I'd originally thought he was a madman, but he was the drowning man who was using everyone around him to stay afloat. If he had to kill everyone to live, he was going to do that. Unlike me, who'd come here ready and willing to die... The young man outside that door was not. Each murder was a testament to the devotion he had to his own life. Each blow to the door was a cry for help, a desperate attempt to reach out. I loaded another injector gun with the wreck booster and pressurized the cylinder. Approaching the door, I banged on it once and screamed for him to back up. The noise stopped and I bent over, sliding the injector gun under the door. I didn't know if he was 18 or not but I also didn't care. Eighteen was society's rule. They wanted us to be old enough and mature enough to work before they stopped the aging process. Your parents could buy the shot the day you were born, and those who could afford it often did, to avoid future price hikes. But you still had to wait until 24 hours before your 18th birthday to get it. I stepped back until my back pressed against a shelf, and I waited. Waited for my booster to shit out and not work and for the APT device to activate and kill me. Waited for the gunman to break through the door somehow and turn my head into gravy like Isabel Ramsey's. Waited for the authorities to show up and kill us both. After spending the last three years waiting to die, now that it might not happen, it seemed a given the universe would intervene, have a big laugh and say, Sorry, not you, kid. You're done here. Time to move along and make room for the producers. The waiting went on, and nothing happened. Behind me, the wreck boosters rattled together in their open box as I let out a deep breath. The two unopened boxes made no noise, 
I turned and examined the boxes in more detail. 75 boosters in each box, and about half as many left in the open one. A lot of lives in those boxes. A scrape near the door drew my attention back that way. The injector gun was in the middle of the floor, the empty cylinder still in the chamber. I scooped up the gun and ejected the cylinder. I put it in the open box and added another gun on top of that. Now I had two guns and a lot of lives in my hands. But I still had to get out of here. The banging had stopped after I put the booster under the door, but the gunman could still be standing there, waiting to put me down. Even if no one inside the clinic had been able to call the police, someone had heard all the gunshots and called. That's what happened when the clinics were routinely built in strip malls. I opened the door to a deserted hallway. Deserted in the sense that there were no living people around me. The gunman had killed my nurse. That was the gunshot I heard right after shutting myself in the medical closet. Her body had collapsed over another's in an intimate pose. Had it not been in death, it would have made a quaint little picture. Two lovers together. I hurried to the relaxation room and found a bag big enough to fit the wreck booster boxes and the rest of the injection guns. I packed them in and, for good measure, dropped in boxes of gloves, tape, thermometers, and their covers. The bag hung well enough on my shoulder. I made my way toward the lobby, knowing what waited for me. I hadn't allowed myself to think about my parents until now. I stepped over Isabel's body again, pivoted, and exited into the lobby. I'd seen their bodies earlier when I first left my room, and now that I was closer... I found myself less upset than I imagined I'd be. My father's body was at my mother's feet, and I knew he'd stood up to protect her. My mother's body was slumped over two chairs. I searched my dad's pockets for his keys. I'd need the car. I hoped they didn't suffer much. They were good parents. They'd never physically abused me, always made sure I had food and toys, friends and activities. They'd engaged with me, and never left me feeling unloved or like anything I wanted was a burden. The only thing they'd failed at, in my opinion, was saving my life. They'd played the game all their lives, always thinking they could win. I couldn't blame them for not saving me. It wasn't their fault. The odds had been stacked against them. But I couldn't find any sadness either. They'd gotten their boosters when they turned 18 and would have lived for hundreds more years. They were part of the problem. Thank you for your life, I said. The gunman's determination to live had ignited a fire in my soul. I'd been indoctrinated, you've been indoctrinated, to think that the only two ways to serve the greater good are to live for a thousand years and produce goods to support society, to be a worker, or as I'm now calling it, to be a fucking slave. And we pay for the privilege to be enslaved. Or we can die so as not to burden the rich who are still exploiting the less fortunate by holding the lives of their children and grandchildren over their heads. Work hard, or we'll kill your family. Slavery or death. Two choices. I'm offering you a third. You found this message, so you're already descending death's stairwell. The rich don't care how the APT device works, and they care even less how the rec booster neutralizes it. They have no need to care for such trivial things. No need to worry, like you are. Why should that be? Why should the same rich families continue to breed, not struggle, and live carefree? It's likely you're the same as me. Ready and willing to die, 
and wanting to know what it'll be like. You're terrified, but curious, knowing your life is worth as much as anyone else's, but you're not sure what you can do, so you're ready to do what you've been taught. But maybe you're the gunman, terrified but angry, knowing your life is worth as much as anyone else's, and you're willing to kill to prove it. I have 190 rec boosters, and it's not nearly enough overall. But it is enough to start a revolution. Whoever you are, I need you. You need each other. And whether the world knows it or not, they need all of us. If you want to live without chains, without worry about having to pay for rec boosters for your children, all you need to do is get from there to here. I hope to see you soon. Thank you, sincerely and from the bottom of my heart, for your life. Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wicked library and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs>